0: Good morning, church. My name's Nick. I'm the assistant minister here at Knox, and it's good to be gathered with you again this morning. If you've been with us over the summer, you'll know that we've been on this journey together considering joy. When there are so many reasons in the world and in our lives for us to despair and to grieve and to ruminate in sorrow, we have chosen to consider what a life marked by joy looks like. Where can joy come from in times like these? Is it even okay to rejoice when there's so much that seems to suggest that it's actually time to refrain from rejoicing? And this week, we're going to talk about justice that brings joy, how these two things come together. And before we get into it, I want to read a couple of scripture verses to you. And as I do that, I want you to answer this question about each of them. I want you to answer, does this sound like your experience of how the world works? And it's okay for you to say no. That's quite all right. So think about that question and share your answers with those around you. Maybe share your answer just yes or no in the live chat as I read each verse. The first verse comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 13, which says, But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will they prolong their days like a shadow, because they do not stand in fear before God. So simply answer yes or no. Does that sound true of what you've experienced and observed of the world around you? I'll give you a moment to share your answers. And then that second verse. It comes right after it, actually. It's Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14, and it says this. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, there are righteous people who are treated according to the conduct of the wicked. And there are wicked people who are treated according to the conduct of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So does that sound like how our world works? Again, share your answer. Yeah, that sounds pretty true. Or no, that's not really what I've seen. I can't see the live chat. So this is a bit of a gamble, but what I think is that most of us would have said that that first verse doesn't actually sound that honest about how our world really works. That we've all known wicked people who've lived far longer than it seems like they deserve, who've been allowed to go on hurting and harming others in a way that really throws into question if there is a good and just God in the world at all. And so with that same train of thought, I suspect that most of us said the second verse actually does sound true of our world, of what we've experienced, that we all have known good, kind, and generous people who endure deep suffering, perhaps who have received a heartbreaking diagnosis, maybe who've died long before their time. And so we wonder, why? And we might ask, what joy can be found in justice when we live in a world that seems so bereft of it? What about the things that we can just see so plainly are evil and seem to be unanswered by God? What about human traffickers and arms dealers? What about the unrepentant racist and the gleefully homophobic? What about those who neither fear God nor show any compassion for people? We might say that these people should be dealt with swiftly, and yet they are not. We might say that their evil is great and it should stir God to anger. It should ignite God's wrath. And yet more often than not, nothing. So how are we to deal with this? First, I would challenge us to consider if we really do desire these things. And I raise that question because as I look around me, I see that we not only witness, but we participate in democratic countries that elect leaders who say the most vile things about women and refugees. Or we elect leaders who it seems as though every other week seem to be under new investigation from an ethics commissioner. And with these realities, can we truly say that we are a people who long for the undoing of the unjust? Or are we a people who admire them and raise them to positions of power? Or we see sexual predators fired from corporations, and we see dog-whistling agitators removed from the columns of newspapers, and we bemoan the onset of cancel culture. And there's a conversation to be had there about how all these things play in together. But seriously, sexual predators and people who are propagating racist beliefs, are these the people that we're going to mourn when they lose their job? We witness the small demises of the very people that we say with our mouths that we desire God to finally subvert. And far from rejoice when it happens in a small way, many of us weep. Why is it that we resist the notion that we should actually rejoice when the wicked perish? As we talk about justice, and especially as we talk about God's justice, we must first honestly consider if we really want justice in our lives and in the world. Because far from a reason for joy, it seems as though we find this justice to be a reason for fear. I think the reason that we see so many negative reactions to even small works of justice in our world is that there's a part of each of us that fears finding ourselves in that same situation. What if I get caught up by words that I said a long time ago, by actions that I'm not proud of? We fear judgment and so we find no joy in its exercise. We fear punishment for all that we've done wrong. So we hesitate to acknowledge that, you know what? Consequences for actions are actually good and right. And the thing that we're longing for in our world. Psalm 7 is the scripture that I'm really going to focus on this morning. And the latter half of it was read for you. But it's a psalm where David sings out to God because of the persecution that he's enduring. And while eventually it does end up in that place that you heard, that God is our shield who saves the upright in heart, a righteous judge who will work against those who do evil. Where it actually begins is what you heard in that prayer of confession and lament. That David actually says, Oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, then let the enemy pursue and overtake me this seems to be a note of caution for all who seek justice, that it will impact us as well, that we may not be as righteous as we imagine ourselves to be, that the suffering we endure may in reality be God working to protect those who we have harmed. None of us being perfect, this seems like an important warning for us to listen to. And perhaps it is this warning that's lodged itself in the back of our minds, and has made us reticent to ever seek out justice, for fear that it may also be our undoing. This line of thinking, that if we pursue justice, it might undo us, and so we shouldn't pursue justice at all, this line of thinking is wickedness in itself. If we truly long for justice in our lives, it must begin with ourselves we must be willing to be confronted by the ways that we have worked evil in the world, willing to be corrected and to do that hard work of reconciliation, becoming humble so that we might again be friend to our neighbor who we have harmed far too often. And as we do this kind of work in ourselves, as justice becomes not only the plea from our mouths, but in fact the very way of our lives, as that happens, we will not come to despise it. And we will not come to despise the pain that it sometimes brings us. Rather, we will learn to rejoice in it in every place where it is found, even when it confronts us. Because we know that it's good. That it's good for us, and that it's good for all people who God loves. Psalm 7, I want you to know, was written not by a man enduring persecution and seeking vengeance on his enemy, Rather, Psalm 7 was first written by a man who, deep within himself, wanted to see God's justice in the world, even if that meant that there might be a cost to him. In the church, we're people who love mercy, and rightly so. As Phil highlighted for us last week, there is a joy that comes from being found and forgiven. Joy in knowing that in spite of our great injustices, God has loved us. But mercy comes with an expectation. And it's an expectation that those who receive forgiveness will behave now as forgiven people. That they will not continue to perpetuate evil, but will put an end to it in their lives that we will rejoice when mercy is offered to others as well, but we will also expect that they too will now behave in new ways. And if they will not, then we should anticipate that one day they will be undone. But why only one day? Why not today? Why not yesterday? Why does this go on and on how long notice what the psalmist takes joy in he says if god does not relent he will sharpen his sword he will bend and string his bow i want you to notice that this is a curious image because it's not an image of the punishment of the wicked it is not saying that god strikes with the sword and looses his arrow Rather, it's an image of the threat against those who do evil. The sword is only sharpened. The bow is merely prepared. And this in itself is a reason for joy. It's a reason for joy because 2 Peter tells us that God is a patient God, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God, though stirred to anger by the injustice of the world, patiently prepares his sword and bow in the hopes that even the wicked may repent, that he can relent from using these weapons and offer them mercy. St. Augustine of Hippo, a North African bishop from the 5th century, he put this idea in this way. He wrote, He is strong, who himself most powerful for our salvation endured even godless persecutors. He is long-suffering, who did not, immediately after his resurrection, seize those who persecuted him in order to punish them. Instead, he bore with them in order that they might eventually turn from such impiety to salvation. And he still bears with them, reserving the final punishment until the final judgment, and even today invites sinners to repentance even when it seems as though the wicked get what the righteous deserve and the just suffer as though they were wicked, still we can have deep joy because we do not see a God who is absent. Rather, we see a God who is patient. Let me say that for you again. Even when it seems as though the wicked prosper we can still have deep joy because we do not see a God who is absent. Rather, we see a God who is patient. We see a God who went before us in this way of suffering, endured the wickedness of the world in his flesh, and loves those who scorned him. We see a God who continues to come alongside us to endure with us the evil and brokenness of our lives, waiting for the day when all things will be set right. And we can know this day is surely coming, because until it does, even God does not rest. So ultimately, Psalm 7 assures us when the wicked are undone, it is because they have stumbled into a pit of their own making. We see, then, that the first harm an evil person does is to themselves as they lay the groundwork for their own demise. This, too, should cause us to rejoice that in responding to God's mercy and choosing to act justly, we find ourselves rescued from that pit of our own making and no longer under the threat of God's wrath. Rejoicing in mercy and rejoicing in justice, these things are two sides of the same coin. When mercy will not be received with repentance, justice will eventually be enacted. And when we struggle to have patience for that second promise to finally come about, we can root ourselves in the joy that God was patient with us when we were once far from him. The book of Proverbs speaks to the heart of justice and joy. It says this, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. This is the promise of God's kingdom, that one day those who do justice, who submit to its ways in their lives and who seek it out for the world, they will prosper and joy will overflow This, too, is the fruit of justice, not only that those who do evil will stumble and perish, but also that the just and the right will find life and joy itself. There is a depth to this goodness, that justice includes flourishing for those who act in its cause, and that those who undermine it, in the end, only undermine themselves that both of these realities are reasons to celebrate because when the good succeed, it's good for everybody around them. And when the wicked stumble, it's good for all who might have been trampled under their feet. Both of these realities are necessary for the full enjoyment of God's kingdom for all people, and both of these realities are promised by our God. Yet even as we wait for the day of their fulfillment, we do have reason for joy. Not only joy in the promise, but also joy in the reminder that God remains present in persecution and pain and sorrow. Having modeled patience in these things through the life of Jesus, our God continues to endure patiently for the good of all who he loves. Brothers and sisters, when you see the just rewarded, you should rejoice. And you should not weep. Perhaps you should even dare to shout with joy if you see an evil person who can no longer do evil. For these things are, in fact, the very first signs of God's coming kingdom, where justice and mercy reign together. And do not lose heart when an evildoer seems to prosper, but take joy in the reminder of the psalmist that the Lord is patient, but he sharpens his sword and that all who persist in their love of evil will one day fall into pits of their own making. May this be so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.